On this episode of Aka Education, Justin speaks with Adam Paltrowitz, educator, composer, and founder of Choral Clarity. Adam shares his educational philosophy and offers up some tips and suggestions for remote learning. Let's get ready. It's time for some Aka Education. It's Hey everybody, it's Justin Glodish here with the Aka Education Podcast. It's episode 21 and it is the last Aka Education Podcast episode of 2020. This week, I have with me blogger of Coral Clarity, Mr. Adam Peltrowitz. Uh, Adam is a teacher on Long Island, and he has the Coral Clarity blog, which gives wonderful advice to all of us Coral educators out there. Adam, welcome to the Aka Education Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Now, let's talk about Coral Clarity because you know I follow your blog and I read up on it every week, and I'm just curious, how did you come up with Coral Clarity? Where did it start? Well, it's an interesting, interesting story. Um, I was frustrated with our profession as a whole. I, I have a lot of um, talented choral director friends all around the country, many uh, on Long Island in New York. And, but what I'm noticing is that the way teachers are being recognized and choirs are being recognized um, is by the success of their top group and maybe a 30-member group or 40-member group, the select few, generally juniors and seniors, and these are the students that are performing at NISMA Level 6, getting their All-States in New York, or they're performing at some major event, or they're performing at a competition or an ACDA conference or a NAFME conference, and everybody's getting the acclaim for these, this select group. And I said to myself, how is that the pinnacle of success. What about all of the other students? How many students were kicked out of the program or self-selected out of the program because they were not accepted into that top program? Right. And what does the freshman group look like? What happens to these students? Maybe this program has 60 freshmen and they pluck out 12 of them to move into this top group. And then what happens to the other 45 or 48 of them in that case? So I said, this is not what I think music education and choral education should be about. Why is ACDA not recognizing self-selected groups, groups that include everybody, that Mm -hmm. sing great repertoire? Um, Why are they not recognizing them? Why are they only recognizing these elite top groups and making us really feel bad sometimes when we go to these conventions? Um, And why are these same students performing the national anthem at the city field or at Yankee Stadium or wherever they are? And why are they going to Carnegie Hall? These are all um, wonderful opportunities. Right. But they are not pinnacle of educational success. So I decided to write a blog, one blog post on this topic, which is basically the secret ingredient um, for uh, secret keys for a successful choir program. And it's all about the, the things that really define what a successful program, in my eyes, it, uh, what they are. Mm-hmm. And as a result, I, I received almost 10,000 um, 
uh, views within the first day. And wow. I said, well, maybe I'm onto something here. And I started writing. And from there, I started talking about the middle class students, um, the average students, what happens to the average singer in a typical program. And then I started to venture out and realize that, that, that there's a lot more to this. And um, I, I realized that I can help a lot of choral directors around the world and of course around the country. And that's, that's what really started the Choral Clarity blog and later the resources and the website and all the other things that, that, that we do. That's fantastic. You know, I, I love everything that you're saying because, you know, I've attended ISMA, you know, several years. I've attended ACDA conferences and usually like there's some sort of audition process um, to, you know, be a part of some of those like um, showcase ensembles and not for nothing. It's, it's most of the time, it's some of those top level groups. And I think what we also lose sight of is that there's elementary school teachers out there and there's middle school teachers who, if it wasn't for them, that high school elite program wouldn't be where it is. Yeah. So, and, and I think that gets lost in the wayside a lot is we, we never give enough credit to the elementary general music teachers who teach the basic fundamentals and then the middle school teachers who keep them engaged, especially right. in New York state when it's technically um, like, it's not required by a certain grade level. You want mm -hmm. to keep them engaged. And by the time they get to high school, you know, they only need like an arts elective in New York state yeah. at least. So it's, it's really those people who are down below who really are essential to that choral program. Yeah. And, and you even said it, you know, what about the students who get kind of like pushed off on the wayside? What, what, like, what are we doing to them? Like what kind of quality service are we really giving them? If we're saying you're not, good enough we're not giving them you know the proper musical experience that they so so greatly desire so right. just your blog itself i think really speaks to that and now with all of these resources that truly help educators i think that is greatly important now um you personally you actually you're in charge of a lot where you teach um i believe you have uh eight groups that you you oversee um can you talk mm -hmm. about just basically the amount of things that you do with the groups that you have sure um so I have a very, I have a wonderful position. I have a great choral program that's that's been around for fifty something years at this point, and I took it over twenty three years ago. And um, I have a mixed choir and a, and a treble choir. That's my only program during the day. My mixed choir is uh, all the basses and tenors, grades nine through twelve, and it's all of the uh, treble voices, sopranos and altos, in grades eleven and twelve. Nice. The treble choir is grades nine and 10. So essentially the sopranos and altos enter the, the program. They're in the treble choir for two years and then they all move into the mixed choir. Wow. The, the basses and tenors enter ninth grade and they stay in the same choir for four years. That is the, the tree for my program. Mm -hmm. So they, those two groups are, one group isn't better than the other. One group is just older right. than the other. And, and so students enter as a freshman knowing that I want to see them in the program for four years. Now, aside from that, we have an after-school program called the Acapella Club. And wow. the Acapella Club has eight student-run groups. Oh, wow. And the eight student-run groups, they formed not all together. One group formed, which caused a second to form, which caused a third, which caused a fourth and fifth and sixth, seventh and eighth. And now there's a ninth group, but the ninth group is different from the other eight. The first eight are student-run groups, and we have three, um, three female, or 
all female acapella groups, two all male acapella groups, three mixed acapella groups. But that wasn't enough because there was something missing, which we could talk about afterwards. But I created a teacher-led group. Oh, nice. Uh, and that's the ninth group. And the teacher-led group consists of members of all eight groups. Oh, cool. So it's almost like a, oh, what do you want to say, an all-star group of your, of your eight groups? Of my eight groups. That's, that's pretty fantastic. Um, and in, in terms of what you, you're, you're an advisor for um, these groups. So um, basically because you oversee them, what are some of the things that you notice in terms of the leadership that comes from the students um, who essentially run these groups is in terms of auditions and choosing repertoire? Mm -hmm. What do you see from your students um, from a leadership standpoint? Well, let's start from the fact that I believe heavily in student empowerment. My choirs are, are majorly run by the students. The students can run rehearsals. If I'm not there, they, can, they conduct concerts when I'm not there. So this trickles into a cappella. So it's like if I look at my choir, which is not, we don't have a huge program. Right now I have about 100 students total from mm -hmm. grades 9 through 12. And a cappella overlaps where there's about 100 students in a cappella. Let's say um, 90 of them are the same. 90% of them are in the choir. Some of them are not. And they're in the band or the orchestra, maybe a few stragglers that are not in the music department. But over, overwhelmingly, that's what you see. Now you take that and you take all the leaders in the choir and you take all the leaders in a cappella and essentially the whole program is filled with leaders. Mm -hmm. You've got in each, in each a cappella program, in each a cappella group, you essentially have co-managers leading the group. Of, and then a music director who's not a manager who right. has a music leader and usually an assistant. So you essentially every group has got like four serious leaders that are doing something. Um, and that, you know, it's, there's some overlap between some of the groups, but you know, there's gotta be 25 leaders in acapella plus the acapella board that oversees all the student run groups. So wow. with, within that, the auditions are a group audition. So each group has two leaders at the audition. So you have essentially 16 students that are sitting there for an audition. Typically this year is a little different because we right. did it virtually, but 16 leaders that are sitting there and a student walks in and they're auditioning for multiple, they might be auditioning for multiple groups mm. at the same time. So in terms of that, you've got the leaders there that are making decisions in terms of music. It's the leaders make all the decisions on what songs are being chosen. Of course, they have to be appropriate and approved by myself and the administration, right. but they choose their repertoire completely. They write their own arrangements completely. That doesn't mean that we're not there to help them. Mm -hmm. but, but when I say help, I mean, it's very rare. It's more like the kids come for a little bit of perspective on what they've written, or I'll give some workshops. Um, I have a co-advisor this year for the first time, um, and she's amazing and uh will give some advice um you know on how they could write it better but generally speaking most of the arrangements are completely theirs without uh, very very little interference at all and then the teaching is a hundred percent theirs so if i if i coach them it's like a master class i'm not right. teaching them They've, they already know their music, they're standing there, they're singing, and then I might be coaching or fixing something that doesn't sound right, but it is, it's 90, 95% their work, almost that is, always. That is phenomenal. Now, out of curiosity, because you have all of those groups in the same room at the same time, 
um, have, what happens in a situation where multiple groups want the same student? Well, that, that happens. That happens every time, <laughs> it, right? If one yeah. person wants them, there's a reason why. Right. So the, the way it works is there's an, there's an audition form. And all these ideas I stole from college. I basically grilled every single college group that ever walked into my school to sing mm-hmm. and asked the same questions. So I, I got enough feedback here. So, so the students walk in and they, they fill out a form and it first says, uh, do you wish to audition for more than one group? Uh, they, can, they, ha- they can be in one unisex group and one mixed group. They're allowed okay. to be in two groups. Cool. Um, so, um, so then they have to rank their first choice, second mm-hmm. choice, third choice, if they wish to audition for more than one group. So at the end of the, the um, auditions, which are usually four or five hours at least, right. um, they get um, all of the first choice papers, well now it's online, go directly to the first group, then the group decides who they want of their first choice, and then those people get moved to the second choice, mm-hmm. and moved to the third choice, and then they go into the circular file oh, cool. um, at the end. So, so basically, um, there's really no arguing. Um, there might be a little negotiating going on sometimes between groups if they really want somebody and they know that somebody else has somebody. But for the most part, it's just straightforward and, uh, you know, quiet. I love I love everything that you're saying, because to me, like being an outsider, I'm hearing that, you know, these students are they're they've been taught really well, you know, and it's a testament to what you have done with your program and really what, what the music program at your district is all about, because, you know, there isn't the fighting there's, they, they've learned some really quality life skills from what you've given to them. So kudos to you. And um, Thank I'm, you. Not, I'm, I'm not going to lie. Like, I would love that. You know, I would like granted it's middle school. So it's very, it's a little different, but like, I would love to see like many high school programs have that same kind of focus and mentality um, that you have given your students, you know, and it's funny that you say, as far as like the arranging thing is concerned, uh, my high school colleague, you know, she has her, her group. She actually just started a second um, um, all female, you know, identifying group this year, but she has a mixed group and the, the female group and it's the same thing in terms of arranging. She's there kind of as the, the guide on the side, as many of us would say. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, students actually, you know, they come to her with, with arrangement ideas. And then really it's using those music theory skills and um, just the ear training skills that they've developed over the course of the program to develop these arrangements for their classmates. And it's, it's fascinating. I'll, I'll pop up, you know, we're in the same complex. So I'll pop up to the high school once in a while. Well, this was before, you know, yeah stuff but i would pop over and just listen to what's going on and, and and there's a lot of great ideas coming out and they they improve as they go because they um they start immersing themselves in the genre and i think that's something that i i've at least tried to instill on in my students is acapella music you know if you want to perform it you need to hear it you need to know it right so um it, it really they really become fans of the genre and really embraced it and that helps with their arranging style without so, a doubt yeah um now for you not only do you know are you teaching but you also you know you arrange and compose so how do you go about choosing the the repertoire that you're creating um how do you go about doing that well, I mean, I generally write, only write when I feel a reason to write. I'm not, I'm not a prolific writer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's not my, my primary income. It's, 
it's just something I do that I enjoy. And I really, I really started writing again. I, I have a composition minor from college. That was my instrument. Gotcha. So I didn't, I didn't, piano wasn't my instrument. It was composition. So, um, but I really didn't do much with it over the years. And then all of a sudden about, I don't know, seven or eight years ago, I just started to, to write again. And going along with the concept of self-selected choirs, I said, I want to write music that makes sense for self-selected choirs. And don't mm-hmm. get me wrong, you know, my choir does, you know, the Eric Whitaker stuff and anything, anything that's out there, if, they'll do it. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, that doesn't make it um, easy to sing. Right. And, and I like to write music that is easy to sing. So the rehearsals are are about the joy of singing and not about the complexity of finding an interval. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there are some, there are some pieces out there that, that sound really cool. And then you look at it and you go, why, why did this composer choose to write it slightly differently in every verse? Right. It sounds exactly the same to the audience. And yet they changed, they changed a ridiculous rhythm for no reason. Right. Or they have this weird leap when it doesn't have to happen. And I think about those things. So I said, let me try writing things that would be more accessible. And I found a lot of success with my groups. So I started writing. I have, I have two live groups that I could play with. Right. And I would do that. And the kids would always joke around, oh, no, revision six. Oh, here comes revision seven, revision <laughs> eight. And, and, and the thing is, I ended up writing something that wasn't in reality for my group. Mm-hmm. It was for a group of singers. It could be a community choir. It could be for, you know, a middle school choir. It could be for a high school choir. Stuff that sounds good, that's well-written, well-constructed, mm-hmm. has good voice leading, that, that, that leaps when it's supposed to and doesn't <laughs> leap when it's not supposed to, that's not 10 minutes long, mm-hmm. you know, two and a half to four and a half minute long pieces, that has a beginning and an end. And, and so so... That's why. And then how do I choose it? Well, sometimes I write poetry. Mm-hmm. It just speaks to me. It makes me think of something and I write. Sometimes there's a poem that speaks to me and I just said, you know what? I really want to turn this into um, a, a piece of music. Mm. That's, that's so awesome. And um, in, in terms of when it comes to working with your students um, to actually like, and you make the revisions, that's awesome in a sense because now they're, they kind of have taken a little bit of, slight ownership in what you're creating and to me yeah. having having that kind of experience is a lot more beneficial than than uh just singing something random they they've taken part in the creative process that's huge yeah that's yeah awesome you know and you know i know exactly which pieces you're talking about where like every measure is is different but it doesn't sound that way and you know and and, and and overall i used to conduct a community choir and i think one of the big things about the community choir is those are people that are there for the passion of it for the fun of it and you know a lot of your students it's the same thing they're there because they enjoy it and because yeah. it's fun so giving them accessible maybe slightly challenging repertoire but is is beautiful and um is again accessible for them to sing that is a greater experience and that right. uh, the overall emotion that comes from that is huge and so that's 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 sick that's awesome Sorry. thank that's, you that's what the kids said it's sick. <laughs> um, well you know but but relating that into acapella for a second yeah you know 
when you're talking about a select group of, you know, like the top acapella groups, like let's say we talk about in my school, it would be my select group, the one that I teach. Um, but you could talk about all the top groups that are competing year after year and on TV and all that stuff, the high school groups. You know, when you hire top arrangers, you know, mm-hmm. Rob Dietz, you know, Ben Bram, all of these amazing uh, arrangers, they're not, they're writing everything they hear in their mind and they're creating beautiful textures and complexities Mm -hmm. and there's a place for that the same way there's a place for eric whitaker but when i'm teaching my students to arrange for acapella i'm teaching them hey guys the pentatonics they've been pretty successful right well there's five of them right and one of them is doing vocal percussion one of them is singing the melody one of them is singing the bass part and there's two parts left. Right. So think like that when you write. Write a solid bass line. Write, a, write the melody the way it's written. Mm-hmm. Let your vocal percussionists do what they're going to do. And then don't try and reinvent the wheel. Just have two more parts and try and fill the sound with those two parts or be creative. Right. And so I try and teach them to think small the same way I try and write for my self-selected group. Mm-hmm. So again, I'm not saying that Eric Whitaker doesn't have a place in the choral world, just right. as I'm not saying Rob Dietz doesn't have a place in acapella. Right. I'm just saying that one of the keys to building a program is to teach people the fundamentals. Mm-hmm. And, and so again, ACDA should certainly have places for self uh, for real select groups to perform, mm-hmm. but they should also have places for self-selected groups that sound 80 to 90% as good. They still sound amazing. You're right. still blown away by how good they are, but they're inspiring because everybody's there. You might have some special ed students in there. Mm-hmm. You might, you might have some, some issues in there. You might have some slight balance issues but not enough basses or not enough tenors, but it still sounds really, really good and it's self-selected. So I'm just kind of tying all of those different concepts into kind of choral clarity, how I think and really how I teach. Right. And, you know, you bring up, you bring up Ben, you bring up Rob, um, you bring up Whitaker. And again, those, I mean, those are people who have made their living uh, arranging and composing yeah. you know those are the those are kind of your your one percent your top tier yeah you know and again we're teaching the basic fundamentals and you know and it's the same mentality for me and and i think a lot of my students you know they listen to pentatonics but they have to realize that that group has been performing together for what about 10 like almost 10 years now yeah. and you know three of them went to high school together yeah so inquire yeah inquire exactly so you know they have they know each other really yeah. well and know what works and what doesn't when ben arranges for them you know he knows exactly what his group can handle right. and, I, and i think that's another important aspect of arranging is that you need to know what your group can handle Right. So when you get that killer bass line and you keep the melody of the, of the solo line the same, because you need to have something that's familiar to the audience to hear, yeah. right. You know, and then kind of fill in the rest of the chord structure and then maybe throw in like, um, you know, something a little funky in there as after you get the bare bones of it, you know, at least that's yeah. how, that's how I've approached it. And I think, yep. I think that's how a lot <clears> of students <throat> start to approach it now. Um, 
basically until you can do that, don't do anything else. That's kind of my, that's my philosophy. Until you can learn how to write a solid bass line that is basically on the root all the time mm -hmm. and a melody, write it down so it's accurate and, and that people can see it. And we're not talking about, they don't have to use their ears. They can copy it from sheet music. Mm -hmm. Just the, write the melody, write the bass line. You don't have to write a vocal percussion part. And then just figure out you want to get the chords exactly right or you want to make them different or you want to have some suspensions to make the voice leading uh, more simplified but sound cooler. That's awesome. But don't do more than that until you prove that you can do that because then when you break the rules and you add six parts and you add doubling and you add all these things, it's because you chose to do it after knowing what what fundamentally works right and and that to me is really uh the key to everything it's about no understanding the why mm -hmm. before you start experimenting beyond that right i always use the analogy with my students of like you're not going to walk into gold's gym you're not going to walk into planet fitness go to you know go to the weight bench and start bench pressing 350 right. pounds right you know you got to work your way up to it so, right. you know, so you start small and then you, you build from there. And I think using that, like it, it really makes sense for, you know, the students, my students, when it comes to, you know, this organic arranging or this, this horizontal arranging that we kind of approach um, in, in terms of um, making, you know, music together. Right. So um, you, you pretty much do it all. You, you have, you know, the, the, um, the musicianship to write music for your students. You know, the fact that you have eight groups, well, nine groups at your school where, you know, some schools only have one or maybe they're developing a second. So the fact that you have that many groups is, is just phenomenal. But um, you also, you know, you give workshops and you give clinics um, to anybody, you know, over, you know, either whether it's through a video call like this one that we're having, mm -hmm. or if it's, um, you know, you actually travel, if it's like within, you know, close range. But how are you approaching that now um, in terms, you know, what, with everything <clears throat> that's going on um, right. in the country right now? Um, I'm, I'm sure, you know, you would say, you know, overarching, you know, the overarching picture, like the big picture doesn't change, you know, you're focused right. on those fundamental things, but how are you approaching uh, workshops with uh, other educators now? That's a great question. And, and it just, it goes back to the way I like to teach, which is that there are living, breathing people in front of me mm -hmm. who want, who want to know how they can be helped and how they can be inspired. And so what I'm always doing is trying to understand who the people are that I'm talking to mm -hmm. and then engage them so I can be helpful and present information or a direction to get them to think differently. I think we tend to all get pigeonholed into our own truths that are not necessarily real. We think whatever it is, 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 is true. Until somebody from the outside goes, how do you think that's true? That's, that doesn't make any sense. That's just what you've always been doing, but that doesn't mean that that's, that's true. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, <laughs> I remember, I remember uh, when we were living in Manhattan, my, um, my wife and I had, you know, we had a one bedroom at the time mm -hmm. and we, we didn't have kids yet. And uh, we needed a place to store things. And we first asked my wife's parents if we could store stuff at their house. And they said, they don't have any room in their house. Meanwhile, there was, there was you know, husband and wife and one child. And they had a three bedroom house with a living room, dining room, 
den, garage, shed, and basement. And uh, we laughed. So then I asked my parents. And my parents have five bedrooms in their house. And I asked them if we could store some, talking about like four boxes. Right. And my parents had five bedrooms. They had one kid and the two of them. Three extra bedrooms, full basement. They didn't have any room. <laughs> you know, and of course, if, if you or I were to move into that house, we go, oh my God, I have so much room. Right. And, and so the mindset is that if we can get somebody to shift their mind to someplace else, look at it from a different vantage point, their whole world opens up. So I don't try, I used to when I was younger, I used to try and get as much information out of my mouth as humanly possible. Mm-hmm. And now I try and shift people's thought process by engaging them, seeing where they're at, and then helping them to get to where they want to go. So the hardest workshops are ones where there's really no engagement, where I'm just talking. Right. And those, I mean, they're successful because I just give information mm-hmm. to a certain extent, but I don't know if they're really successful. They're successful for my book because I'm telling them things that I want them to know. Right. But, but I find them more successful like this. If I had five people like you here mm-hmm. asking questions, I feel like I can help, help to really make an impact. And that's really where I think that I, I'm, I'm most effective, whether it's virtually or, or in person. So that doesn't really change for me. Right. And, you know, as educators, I, I mean, maybe you have the same uh, thought process as I do. It's like, I can't do my job any better unless my students ask the questions to guide me. You know, I can, mm-hmm. I can give them all this information. They can regurgitate it back to me on a quiz or a test or whatever. But, yeah. you know, it's really like to keep them engaged, you got you to gotta th- almost think like them and kind of get their personality, yes. their side of it, because that's what makes us better educators is to be able to redirect back to them and make it personal and personable for them. I, I just, yeah, just related to that because it's so important. I feel like a lot of teachers, they miss the mark there. They try to be cool like them, where they try to either be hanging out with them or they try to be up on whatever the slang is or up on the cool songs that they like or up on the cool shows and, and, and trying to reach them that way. Yeah. And instead, I think that the key is to reach them emotionally where they're at. Mm-hmm. Try to emotionally um, gauge and engage where they're at. And I'll give you just a quick example. And this will, will, I'm sure this will reach you at some level as a middle school educator. There is nothing more embarrassing in almost every school than when the kids in the choir have to give a daytime concert to the other kids in the school. Yes. Yes. I, I know that all too well. Yes. It's embarrassing for them. It's not embarrassing at night if you're cool, if you're if your choir's cool and the program's great and they're 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 happy, they're excited to, to perform for their parents and their friends and but during the day it, they are completely embarrassed by right. what they're doing. And so you there's two ways to combat that. But the, the easiest way to combat that is to not do the choir music during the day for mm-hmm. the school because you understand emotionally where they're at. So right. in the high school, it doesn't change very much. In my school for many years, um, 
it was, we have a small auditorium and we have a big high school. We have about 1600 kids and 590 seats. So it was voluntary, which teachers chose to take their students down for the performance. Mm -hmm. And I very quickly learned that nobody wants to hear classical music when they're randomly being pulled down to the auditorium. Right. So what I did was I just engaged acapella and, and holiday music and circled the audience. And it was pretty effective. We didn't do it every year. Some years we didn't sing at all. Some years we did. Depended on how I was feeling about the program and how I was feeling in terms of the com school community and all that mm -hmm. stuff. But the point is I understood what the students were feeling Right. I wasn't trying to be cool. I was understanding what would I want to do if I was a high school student and I had to get up in front of these other kids who don't value music right. or music education. Yeah, that's that's very difficult. And I mean, at least in also from the middle school perspective, like they're they're already they're starting to have this, you know, self-doubt, this this worry. Right. And, you know, and middle school, typically, again, that's where you start seeing a decline in enrollment in uh, mm -hmm. choir programs because, you know, the mentality shifts. Oh, it's not cool anymore or or whatever, you know, whatever the reason may be um, or there's just more options for them. They're kind of more down their alley or whatever. But again, performing in front of their peers and then, you know, your, their peers just kind of like make, cracking jokes and making jokes. <laughs> Right. That kind of that that gives the self esteem of those students just a, a shot, you know. And right, it's, and it's it is very difficult. So yeah, catering catering to your audience, you know, I think is very helpful, and um, and just emotionally, just yeah, thanks. It's just that concept of just it's it's actually goes back to the last question you asked, which is really it's like you really just have to realize what is going on in the mind of the person that you're working with that you that you're trying to help. You know, this is not about me. You know, you right. can't go in if you want to be a great teacher, you can't make it about you. It's about them. Right. If you want to be a great salesman, it's not about you. It's about them. Right. It's always about them and how you can guide them to find whatever it is they need. And with that said, in today's world, they could find anything that they need on YouTube. Mm -hmm. Anything. Anything they want to learn is on YouTube. And it could be just as succinct as you can teach it or I can teach it or any of us. So, so what's our goal now? Is our goal to say ignore YouTube because I've got the answers? No, the goal is to, to find a way to inspire them to want to go on YouTube and, and learn. You want that, that student to, to learn vocal percussion and go on there and watch every expert up there and practice eight hours a day on their own. Right. And you want that student that you gave them an Italian aria to want to find 20 recordings of that Italian aria sung by other singers. You don't want to just hand them an Italian aria and here's a recording. Listen to this recording and practice it and get measures one through eight down and come back next week and get it perfectly. You just want to go, isn't this a cool piece? Doesn't it, doesn't it inspire you? You know, had, did you find any recordings on YouTube? Have you found any? Yeah. Oh, I, I saw a great one. I'll send you a great one. Tell me if you see any that are better than this one. And you just get them going. And so it's just the idea of how do you just spark something in someone? Because I find for me that it's always the sparks that shift my direction that change my life. Yeah, it changed my direction. It's not information.
It's mm-hmm. a spark. It's something somebody says that hits me over the head that I never expected to come at that time, and that changes me. And that, to me, is what teaching is all about. That's what giving workshops is all about. I mean, that's, that's what this is all about. Absolutely. You know, and that brings me to my next question is like, you know, you've been teaching for over 20 years, um, you know, in that respect, what has been one of the, some of the most rewarding things that you've seen happen in your career, but also, you know, what has been the most challenging? Well, let's see. The most, the most rewarding thing is honestly seeing these students um, become confident leaders regardless of what career they go into mm-hmm. what obviously there's great joy when they go into music ed or vocal performance or or something like that or or music business or any of music tech any of those things that they go into and there's we've had tons of students go into the professional world the acapella world um you know a lot a lot of them and, and um that's wonderful. That's cool. I have colleagues, colleagues that are former students of mine that frankly know a lot more than I do. Um, and, and that's amazing. But when you see these students, for me, that I love watching students that would have dropped out of almost any other choir because they were average singers. They would not have made it into the select group. And they're the leader of my choir. They're the manager. They're the associate manager. They make the decisions. They're not teaching the choir. They're organizing, leading the choir. It's their positive role that is making the choir a family, united, that's embracing the timid, younger students. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm so proud when I see these students rise through the program. I'm also super proud of the students that are really on that cusp of, you know, um, not getting into other programs if they were in other schools and making it into acapella on their third fourth or fifth or sixth try and all of a sudden because they're leaders they become leaders of groups or they write an arrangement or they get a solo when they could you know they could barely barely match pitch as as a freshman and now they're getting a solo in an acapella group um so so that that those two are 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 the big accomplishments Mm -hmm. i would say the biggest challenge for me i believe how should I say this? I believe that teachers, if they really want to be successful, they have to push the line of, you, we always want to create a positive environment. And we always want, want to encourage students to want to be their best. Mm-hmm. But I find that most teachers stop at a point where there's a discomfort. They're not willing to tell that student that they're not working hard enough or that they could be more if they did something more mm-hmm. or, or being able to assess them accurately where the student can see what they aren't getting right. so they can get it and not allowing them to slide by on what they can't do. And I bring out those things and I turn them into positives, mm-hmm. you know, so for I'll give you just a quick example. So sight singing is as simple as it's it's how well your ear is developed, it's how well your rhythm is developed, it's how well you read the pitches on the staff. They are three separate skills. They are not at all intertwined. 
Right. And we as teachers generally shove them all together and expect the kids to get it. Mm-hmm. And sometimes kids that are good enough at all three become decent sight readers. But sometimes those kids that are good enough at three are really great at two and terrible at one. Right. And you isolate that one skill and you say, no, no, you're not able to submit that to me until you get that rhythm perfectly. I don't care how perfectly your pitches are. You're going to keep submitting that. You're going to get a B until you submit the rhythm correctly because you need to develop that skill. Um, that kind of thing. Or I had a, a pianist once, a, a student of mine, who went off to be a music teacher. And she she was a wonderful pianist. And I gave her a very difficult piece to learn. And she said she she didn't think she could learn it. You know, She basically was saying she was lazy. Mm-hmm. And that's what I said to her. So you're saying that you're lazy. You're saying you're not willing to make the effort. You, see, you know, and I, I didn't say you are lazy. I said, you're saying that you're lazy. Right. right. You're saying you're not willing to, because I believe you can do it. Right. I know you can do it. So I'm not, you're, are you telling me that I'm wrong? That you, and, and so the point is that she did it, right. but she cried. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm not afraid to get to that moment. And I'm never, I don't say mean things. I'm not hard on them in, in, in a negative way, but that does sometimes lead to some backlash. And sometimes that's hard because, you know, you, you're always looking for trying to bring out the best in these students right. because you want what's best for them. And sometimes they're just not ready for it. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's the most challenging thing. When you end up upsetting somebody, when you're really looking for the best, and I know that there's always a way that you could stop before then, mm-hmm. but I don't believe in that. I just don't believe in that because right. there's so many students that would never get to where they are if you don't keep pushing them beyond where they're at. Right. Yeah. And, and honestly, like you're preparing them for the real world because yeah. there's going to be situations like that in, you know, after college, after high school, yeah. you know, you'd be faced with those, those hardships. And, um, you know, I think getting that experience now for the student, for those students, it's, it's important for them because yeah. who knows, you know, who knows, uh, what kind of like mentality, mentality they will have once they leave you, you know? Right. So yeah, that's phenomenal. Um, now on your Coral Clarity blog, you have a lot of resources and, um, you know, educators out there, you can check out, you know, coralclarity.com and Adam's got amazing things out there for you for purchase. Um, but, uh, I was actually talking to Adam earlier and Adam, you, um, you're offering up to, to help out some of us during this, uh, this remote time. Can you yeah. uh, let us know about yeah. that? Sure. So a lot of what I talk about, I mean, I've got a lot of themes going on, but one of them is self-assessment. Mm-hmm. To me, self-assessment is really the key to, um, to students really excelling beyond your expectations because when it's not about you and it's about them, and they know what it takes to be great something, they could then make a choice to be great. And so, for example, if you're self-assessing their, um, <clears throat> their rehearsal, how they participate in rehearsal, when you're self-assessing that and you say, you explain to them, um, you know, are you outstanding, which means you're always sitting up um, when you're singing, um, or are you sitting up? most of the time when you're singing 
Or do you sit up some of the time when the teacher asks you to? Mm -hmm. Or do you hold up your music all of the time? Or do you hold up your music when you're asked to? And you start getting them to assess, do you make markings in your music all of the time or some of the time? The point is, I spend a lot of time talking about the self-assessment, mm -hmm. showing them what it is about, and then giving them the opportunity in class to fill it out. So we talk about this, and my belief system is when they can acknowledge where they're at and not be penalized heavily because it, I, I set it up in a way where they can be very successful academically by being honest. Mm -hmm. And there are easy ways to do that. You make it, if you have 10 categories, 10 things that you're grading on, and the grades are 10, 9, 8, and 7, all of the time, most of the time, some of the time, rarely ever, they're gonna. They're not gonna do poorly. Right. If you if you if you now if you make it on a scale of one to four, they're gonna do poorly because a three is a seventy-five. Right. Exactly. Right. So so the point is that I believe in self-assessment. So one of the things I did this year was I made a, a remote learner self-assessment. I wrote a blog on how to engage learners when they are remote. And of course, I'm assuming that you're live streaming. It's very hard to engage them and know what they're doing when you're just handing them assignments. So assuming they're remote and live, I said, it's really important that, that they have clear expectations. How are they supposed to log on? How are they supposed to behave? Are they allowed to eat? I'm just making things up. They're not necessarily on my self-assessment, but right. are, are, what are they allowed to be doing? What are they not allowed to be doing? Right. How do they answer questions? Uh, are, you know, where should their phone be? You know, just, just an example, things about things that you think through the same way you would in the classroom <clears throat> for remote learners. So I created a self-assessment that is modifiable. It's my self-assessment, what I'm going for, but you could take yours and say, I like seven of them and I'm going to just write over these three. It's essentially a form that I have filled in that you could then steal and change up. So I normally charge a few dollars, $4 for it. I've got one for, for classroom. I have a pre-concert um, you know, when the music's memorized and they're on the risers, like that kind of self-assessment, a post-concert self-assessment on how they did at the concert. This is a remote learner self-assessment. Mm -hmm. And um, and so we're, we're going to come up with a code. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe we'll do ACA podcast, something like that. Um, and A-C-A-P-O-D-C-A-S-T will remind me exactly what it is. And, yep. we'll, and, and so anybody that types that in will download it for free. Awesome. Thank you so much. That, sure. That'd be perfect. Yeah. And um, I'll, I'll remind people um, after this interview is over in uh, later on in the podcast, just give them that code and, you know, we'll post it all over social media. So yeah, that opportunity uh, to take part. Um, Adam Paltrowitz, it has been an honor to actually talk to you and really understand your philosophy. And um, it's been eye opening uh, for me. You know, I, I actually, it's great to hear. It's refreshing because I feel a lot of the same things that you have said. So like it's refreshing to know that um, we're on the same page, you know, and hopefully yeah. all you educators out there, um, you, you really listen to Adam's words and, um, you know, just know that, you know, it really comes down to how you approach your work with your students and, uh, you know, build it from there, developing those interpersonal relationships with them and then just making them the best versions of themselves that you can. So um, Adam Paltrowitz, thank you so much for joining me on the Aka Education Podcast this week. Thanks so much, Justin. It was really nice meeting you officially for the first time. And thank you for having me. Absolutely. We'll be right back.
and welcome back to the Aka Education Podcast. Listen, everybody, I have to say, these last five months, bringing you episodes week in and week out has been such a pleasure. It's been This has been a passion project of mine for, for quite some time, and I'm glad that I'm able to actually do it and share it and have you all listening to it. I hope you've gained more knowledge. I know that I have. I've met new people. I've, I've learned so much, and I'm hoping 2021 brings the same. With that being said, I'm looking to make things bigger in 2021 and I could use your help. If you go to my Anchor website, anchor.fm slash podcast, and you click on support, you can become a monthly supporter of the Aka Education Podcast. You can choose between 99 cents a month, 4.99 a month, or 9.99 a month. Totally up to you. But what your contribution will bring is the opportunity for me to bring in some more guests to actually bring out merchandise for all of you to have more contests to be able to make this podcast and this experience more interactive for you another way that we can make it more interactive is if you actually go to that anchor website there is also a link that says messages and you can click on that link and you can leave me a voice message telling me what you think about the podcast good or bad uh, asking any questions, giving me um, episode suggestions, what to talk about, whatever you feel like spilling, you can throw into that message, into those messages. I thank you from the bottom of my heart for making this podcast a success for me. And thank you to every guest that I've had so far this year and who I'm going to have for the rest of this year. And I'm looking forward to 2021. So please consider making a monthly donation and becoming a supporter of the Aka Education Podcast. Again, that website is anchor.fm slash Aka Ed Podcast and click on support. Hey everyone, this is Justin from the Aka Education Podcast here to tell you about Anchor. Anchor is what I use to create these podcasts and let me tell you, it's free. Uh, There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. And the beauty of it is we'll distribute the podcast for you. So I can record on Anchor and it's going to send it to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all these other places as well. And I love that I can make money from this podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So be sure to download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. And that's going to do it for episode 21, the last episode of 2020. I want to take the moment to thank Adam Paltrowitz of Coral Clarity for joining me this week on the Aka Education Podcast. Be sure to check out the links in our episode description for resources that we discussed in today's podcast. Check us out on social media, Aka Ed Podcast. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and on Facebook. Be sure if you haven't done so already to subscribe to this podcast so you can be notified when a new episode is posted every week. We're on Spotify, we're on Apple Music Podcasts, and we're also on Anchor. You can also now check us out on Akaville Radio, akaville.org. Feel like donating to support this podcast? Check out the link in the episode description for more information. And last, if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for the podcast, be sure to email me at akaedpodcast at gmail.com. I'm Justin Glodish. I'll see you soon.